Well, you may be seated and good evening. Welcome to uh, Pastor's Corner Live. Glad that uh, you're here live with us and also those of you that are out on uh, Facebook Live. We welcome you and glad that you're here. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week we opened our time together and we were talking about how that there's this passive aggressive tolerance that's uh, present in our culture and in our world today toward Christians, and while none of us have suffered the type of persecution today that probably those Christians in North Korea or Somalia may have had to endure, and we've definitely not endured the kind of persecution that those first century Christians around 64 AD that were going through with, uh, with Emperor Nero and the great persecution that was happening against churches, we, we definitely are not experiencing uh, that kind of persecution today in our own life. However, Whatever persecution it is that we are facing, that is the persecution that we're facing. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you get a kid and they're, they're young and they come in and they, they, they come to see and they're like, Mom and Dad, look at this great big zit on my face right here, you know? And we're like, it's no big deal, right? But to them, it is an enormous thing because it's the first time that maybe they have faced something like that. And so when we think about this persecution that we face, we, we don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, but it is the persecution that we're facing today. So last week in our current series, it's entitled Bitter or Better You Decide. And it's simply just an expository look through the book of First Peter. We noticed how Jesus navigated through suffering and how he navigated through persecution is explained to us there in first Peter chapter two, verses 21 through 25. And so what Peter taught us last week as we were going through those passages together is that Jesus suffered virtuously. And I don't know if you remember our definition from last week or not, but virtuously simply means having or showing high moral standards. When Jesus was persecuted, he showed these high moral standards, even though he was suffering unjustly. We saw how that he never sinned. How that Jesus never deceived and Jesus never retaliated or Jesus never threatened. And the only way, only way that Jesus was able to operate this way is that's because that is who Jesus is. And that's who Jesus was during that time. He is virtuous. He is one that handles everything with high moral standards. And so even though we are ready tonight really to move into chapter three, because that's where we are in our study, I'm not ready to move into chapter three yet. And there's a reason for that. I think we covered this information good last week. I think we got through the things that we needed to, but when we got to the end of our study, and as I kind of was thinking back uh, this week, getting ready for tonight, I don't think we talked about the, how do we do something like that? Jesus was able to endure persecution and, and able to do the suffering virtuously and in a, with a high moral standard. And we understood that last week. But again, I'm not sure that we made an application of that or how to put that. So we're going to hold off moving into chapter three tonight. And I want us to go back and talk about last week. We talked about what Jesus did when he was persecuted. And tonight I want us to concentrate on doing what Jesus did or do what Jesus did. And I'm going to use the, uh, the, the, the letters DWJD. Say that with me tonight. DWJD. Do what Jesus did. Now, what does that sound a whole lot like? WWJD. Does anybody know what WWJD stands for? Okay, y'all have all got it. Now, do you know how that came into existence? We know this phenomenon called WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's right there at the tip of our tongue. But do you know how that came into existence? Anybody? Say again. 
It was actually a youth group in 1989, the youth group at the Calvary Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan. Their youth pastor challenged them to study Charles Sheldon's 1896 novel, In His Steps. And guess what the subtitle is? What would Jesus do? And so what these, this youth group did is they began to read that novel and they made the commitment. We're going to start asking ourselves the question before anything that we do or anything we say, we're going to ask ourselves the question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And so they created these little bracelets, these woven bracelets with the letters WWJD, and they put them on their wrist. And it was just a reminder that as they went throughout the day, everything they said, everything that they did, they would look down and ask themselves the question, what would Jesus do before they would take action on that? And it kind of caught on in their community and people began to see those bracelets and they began to share with them what they were doing. By the late 1990s, the letters WWJD could be found on a multitude of books, T-shirts, and other Christian merchandise. And it's estimated that over 14 million WWJD bracelets have been sold since this all started back in the, uh, in the late 1980s. This is actually a picture of a, a wall hanging that I have in, uh, in my office, uh, Payne Stewart uh, won the 1999 U.S. Open, and then just a few months after that was killed in an in a, in a, in a air, in a airplane incident. But uh, if, you, if you know much about Payne Stewart, he was known as Mr. Colorful, or the, the most colorful golfer on tour, because he always wore the knickers, and he always wore the, the sweaters and the duck-billed hat, you know, of the old tradition. On Sunday, if wherever town he was playing a golf tournament in, he always wore that team's NFL colors, and it was kind of an amazing thing. This is, uh, this is the caption there on that. It says, Payne Stewart, 1999 U.S. Open champion, WWJD what would Jesus do? And then it says, Payne wore a simple WWJD bracelet after a challenge from his son to wear it during competition. It became an inspiration to fans, friends, and fellow tour professionals and demonstrated Payne's love for the Lord to the world. So now, aren't you feeling good tonight? You know what WWJD stands for and you know where it got its start. Don't you feel good for being at church tonight? Man, I, I sort of thought y'all would be more happier than that. Okay, then let me ask you a third question then. What was the theme verse that Charles Sheldon read that gave him the motivation to write the book in his steps subtitled WWJD? I think you're probably going to have a pretty good guess. Guess what book of the Bible it's in? First Peter. Good job. Yeah, y'all are right there. So here's the passage. It's first Peter chapter two and verse 21. It's that passage we looked at last week for you have been called for this purpose. Does anybody remember from last week? What's the purpose? Suffering is part of the salvation package, right? You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his Steps. In other words, he's left you an example. You remember that idea of following in his steps? I talked about how my dad used to go out and he used to till the ground in preparation to plant and he would walk in the dirt and I would try to follow in those same steps. Well, Jesus has set the steps for us to follow in when it comes to persecution and we should approach that with high moral standards virtuously so that we can demonstrate to the world that our hope is in something beyond this. So last week we talked about the reasons for walking in his footsteps, who Jesus is, how he did it, those kind of things. But again, as I thought about last week going into tonight, I kept asking myself the question, well, how, 
How do we do that? How do we make sure that we prepare ourselves to be virtuous in the things that we approach? How do we do what Jesus did? W. DWJD, right? I'm having a problem there, DWJD. Do what Jesus did. Well, I think there's five actions when I study scripture, and we're going to deviate from the text a little bit tonight. There's five actions, and there's more. As I study through scripture and I read about Jesus's life here on earth, uh, there's a lot of actions that he took, but I believe there's five actions, if we study those actions that we find in scripture tonight, that will equip us to do what Jesus did. And why do we want to do what Jesus did? What's the premise of everything I'm sharing this just so you can just come to church and hear something? What's been the whole premise of this? Bitter and get better and not bitter, right? Based on what? If you hold traditional Christian, Judeo-Christian views in a world today, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, you're going to face some, for, some sort of persecution. It may not be like North Korea. It may not be like Somalia. But you're going to face some sort of that. And we want to be able to live better and not bitter. And so I want us to talk about these five actions tonight so that when you face whatever your persecution is, whatever it is that, that you have to come in contact with because of who you are in Christ and choosing to live like that, you can be prepared to handle it and walk in the same, same footsteps that Jesus Christ did. So action number one that I I find that Jesus was always engaged in here on this earth that helped him be ready was Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. I know that Jesus prayed beyond a shadow of a doubt because there's 45 instances in the gospels where it tells us specifically where Jesus was praying. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter one with me tonight. We're going to look to all of our passages together. We're going to kind of be bouncing around just a little bit, but I want you to take your Bibles and turn there with me because you may find a passage that you want to jot down that might be a blessing to you later. And so tonight in Mark chapter one is one of the one of the 45 times in the gospels that we find Jesus praying. Mark chapter one and verse 35. You have it? Say amen if you got it. All right. Verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. From this passage of scripture, I begin to realize from others that I read with that as well, is that Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry, it was saturated in prayer. If you go back and you read on your own account and you read through the gospel story, you'll find that Jesus was always surrounded by ministry. There was always a swirling effect. There were, there were people needing him. There were people wanting to get to know him. There were, there were miracles that needed to be performed. There were sick people that were always around. And Jesus from can to can't, first thing in the morning till late at night, Jesus was always involved with meeting the needs of other people. But yet, before he would ever involve himself in ministry, he always was careful to go have a communion time with God the Father so that he was operating in the Father's strength and not his own strength to be able to do ministry. Now, I want you to notice something else very interesting about this. Look back at verse 35. It says what? It says early in the morning. How many night people do we have here, right? Yeah, early in the morning. You got to be praying, amen, right? We got to... 
Y'all didn't say amen on that part. We're talking about doing what Jesus did, right? Well, I'm not sure that we have to do it first thing in the morning. I think I'm a morning person. I think that's the best time to be able to do it because that's when we're fresh. But what I do see in this is that Jesus had to make an effort to find time to do this. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we just think that that our spiritual disciplines are just something that's going to happen because we love the Lord. No, if you don't make time, if you don't determine to adjust your schedule, if you don't choose to do whatever it takes to carve that time out of your day, those things are not going to happen in your day. It's the same thing as uh, we just decide, well, we're going to lose weight and start going to the gym. Well, you've got to find a time to go to the gym. And I'm not looking at anyone's particular, okay? Don't get me wrong. But you have to make that time because it's something that you want to change in your life. And that's the same thing for our prayer life. If we specifically want that to happen, we have to do what Jesus did here. And what Jesus did is he carved out time in his day to make sure that he was alone with God, communicating with God before that he ever tried to do ministry for God. So in other words, if we're going to DWJD, do what Jesus did, we must make prayer a priority in our life. We have to make prayer a priority in our life. And if Jesus thought it was, it was uh, worthwhile to pray, if he needed to pray in order to live virtuously, in order to live in a way where he could handle the persecution, if Jesus chose and knew he had to do that, how much more is that important for those of us uh, to have that in our life? So action number one that will help us live virtuously when we face our persecution is Jesus prayed. The second action that I find in scripture as I study the life of Christ is that Jesus engaged the lost. Jesus engaged the lost. Now, the religious establishment of Jesus's day, they felt like interacting with uh, unclean or sinful people. That's just not what a righteous or, a, or an upstanding person would do. You would never intentionally be around sin-filled or sickly people, whether that was physically or spiritually. But Jesus never had that approach. He, he, he never had this squeamish approach of being around those that didn't measure up to what the religious establishment had to say. Let's look at Luke chapter 5. I think we find a good example of that in Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, just be mindful of the fact that uh, we're talking about tax collectors in this passage of Scripture. We're talking about another word for tax collector is a publican. And they were some of the most despised individuals of the day. We have the Roman Empire that's come in and they've, 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 they've exhibited their force. They've, they've overwhelmed the Jewish land. They've taken over Palestine. They are now in control. And the Jewish people did not like them. They did not appreciate that they had come in and done that to them. So they despised the Romans that were in their land. But they even despised these tax collectors and publicans more than the Romans. Because these tax collectors were kind of in between the Roman government and the common people. And so whatever tax that the Roman government had, they would look to the tax collector or the publicans to get that. And if they had to take a little bit more tax in to make a way of living or to have what they wanted, that was okay to do that as long as the government got what they want. And so they despised them both because they felt like they were traitors to their country, but they were also traitors to God. And so these were very, in the eyes of the religious establishment, very sin filled. These were very, uh, these were just kind of the people that you just did not hang out with. But yet in Luke chapter five, we find that Jesus comes in contact with this tax collector by the name of Levi. That's going to become known to us as Matthew later on. And shortly after Jesus comes in, t- in contact with this tax collector and this publican, Jesus invites him to come be one of his disciples. 
Not only do I, do I want to interact with you, I want to have this really close relationship. I want you to come be one of my disciples. And so Matthew is so, so excited about what Christ has done in his life that he goes and invites all of his tax collecting buddies, right? He goes and invites all of these sin-filled people to his house for this great big banquet so that Jesus can interact with all of these. And in Luke chapter 5 and verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax? tax collectors and sinners. I mean, no upstanding religious person. I mean, nobody that really gets it would have that kind of interaction with somebody like this. Now, who are they approaching? His disciples. They're not coming to Jesus, but Jesus overhears them. And Jesus answers and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, sinners to repentance. DWJD, what does that stand for? Do what Jesus did. If we're going to do that, then we have to learn to engage those kind of people that we may never have thought that we were willing to engage with. We have to engage those that aren't just in our circle of friends right here inside the four walls of Oak Ridge Baptist Church. That's not what Jesus did. He had his close confidant of other believers that he went to and they conversed and they challenged and they helped each other. But then he went outside of that circle and he interacted with those that were sick and that were in need of a savior. And so that's the things that Jesus would do. And we have to change sometimes our perspective of people in order to be able to do that. Remember what we talked about on Sunday in Psalm 139. We talked about how Jesus, uh, the, the psalmist talks about how that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. What's that word fearfully meant? Do you remember? It's made in such a way that we respect it, that we, that we, that we look at it as a creation of God, fearfully and wonderfully. What was the word wonderfully? That it was made very uniquely. And so even though that there's people outside of our sphere of influence here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church that don't necessarily talk like we do, and they don't necessarily believe like we do, and they don't necessarily go to the places we do, Scripture tells us that just like us saved ones that have got all of our hearts right with God, boy, I mean, we are, we are squared away kind of people that are fearfully and wonderfully made. Guess what? All of those others that are outside of this church building are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Jesus was willing to interact with them. Jesus was willing to step out of that comfort zone of his holy huddle. And he was willing to interact with them and show them how that they could have that same relationship with God. And so I think that's what we have to learn if we want to understand how that we can, we can do things the way Jesus would have us to do. We have to understand that just like God has a purpose and a plan for our lives, all those people that are outside of these four walls of this church, God has a purpose and a plan. Do you, do you, do you know what all the purpose and the plan is for everybody that's outside the four walls? We, we have a hard enough struggle. I'm preaching a whole series of messages for us to try to figure out what we're on this earth for, right? Much less what somebody else. What if Jesus would have listened to the religious establishment? What would he said, you know what? You guys are right. This Matthew guy, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to cut ties with him because after all, he's a sinner. Do you think it could have impacted Christianity in any way? Who's got your study Bible with you tonight? Anybody got your study Bible? I'm not, I'm asking, got it? Go to, go to, go to the book of Matthew. Tell me who the author of the book of Matthew is. The gospel of Matthew. 
Go, go look in your authorship. Who's the author of the Gospel of Matthew? A former tax collector by the name of Levi that God said, I want to interact with you. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. But Jesus no longer walks this earth today. Who walks the earth today? We do. And God said, I want you to go out into the hedges and the highways and the byways. And I want you to invite people to come to the banqueting table. And I want you to tell them about me so I can let them in on what my master plan is for their life. Does that change our approach when we go through a little persecution? We get made up fun of just a little bit for being a Christian, but then this person that we've met and we've shared Christ with, they make their, their, determine, they, they make their decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a result of us enduring that, there's people that are going to have eternal life. Doesn't that kind of change our perspective when we choose to live a little bit better and not so bitter? That's what Jesus did. We see here with Jesus, he prayed, Jesus engaged the lost. Here's a third action that I see in his life. If I studied it is that Jesus always defended the truth. Give me a good amen right there. Man, Jesus did. Doesn't that just make you feel good? Jesus defended the truth. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. And then in a minute, I think we're going to go, oh my, I'm not sure. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. I'm listening for your pages turning. I can't hear your, I can't hear your iPhones doing that. So I just have to listen for the pages, right? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, talking about Jesus defended the truth. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. There was this whole, you talking about, they, they, weren't, they weren't germaphobes, they were religious phobes, right? They had to do things in a certain way, in a certain order, and do all this washing because they wanted to make sure that they were never unclean. After all, that's why we don't talk to sinners, because they're unclean and they might contaminate us. And so they're going through this whole process. And so verse five says, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So action number three right here is what? Jesus defended the truth. Everybody say it. Amen. Jesus defended the truth. But here is how the truth that he's defending against right here. Jesus stood against lifeless religion. Jesus came and said, it's the truth that will set you free. And the truth of the matter is, if you're truly saved, it won't create tradition. It won't create man's thinking. It won't create these kind of holding on to things. It's going to change you completely in a bunch of different ways. And so Jesus stood against lifeless religion. He openly confronted religious hypocrisy. He repeatedly rebuked religious people who buried the true heart of God in their man-made traditions. 
So in light of that, we're asking ourselves tonight, what? Do what Jesus did. Jesus went on record against people who act in the name of God and hurt others. He stood up against those who claimed to be holy, but were wholly selfish in all that they did. So if Jesus spoke in defense of the truth, then we should be willing to do the same thing. Amen. If he spoke against religious hypocrisy, we should be willing to do the same, right? Now, here's the kicker in all of this. Is abortion wrong? Is same-sex marriage wrong? We are always very concerned about holding that truth. But you go back and read in Jesus's earthly ministry. Did you know that he spent less time speaking out about the evils of unsaved people than he did about speaking about the evils of religious people? The truth that Jesus was always worried about was us living the way that he commanded us to live, not putting other things around it and making it a being about a religion. He was constantly calling people out for their spiritual hypocrisy. He was constantly calling them out for saying they were one thing, but doing it another way. And there's a reason for that. Unsaved people are supposed to act like unsaved people. Did y'all know that? Do you know we should not be, we, we should not be so, so taken back by the fact that an unsaved pe- person really doesn't think there's anything wrong with same-sex marriage? That should not shock us today. You know why? They're unsaved. But what Jesus is saying here is a lot of times those people that are outside of the relationship with God, they're outside of the relationship with God is because there's been a bunch of people that said, I'm religious, and they still do things like an unsaved person does them. And because they're doing things like an unsaved person, but saying, I am saved, I am a Christian, I'm doing things the way God wants me to do, but acting some other way, that's caused more damage to people coming into the kingdom of God than unsaved people acting like unsaved people. So in this area of of the truth, I wonder how open we are to giving someone inside the four walls of the church the privilege and the permission to come up to me and call me out when I'm not acting like a saved person and I'm acting like an unsaved person. That's the kind of truth that Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus is a defender of the truth. Uh, Not quite as loud that time, right? Now we get messed with a little bit. Now, now we, we love the idea of defending the truth that we agree with, defending the truth that we know it's wrong. But yet Jesus is constantly dealing with the fact that the church needs Christians today that are willing to hold one another accountable. The world needs Christians today that are willing to deal with their own hypocrisy before we try to deal with the problems of the world. Because unsaved people are to act like unsaved people and saved people should expect one another to act like saved people. DWJD, what? Do what Jesus did. Here's the fourth action that Jesus did that I find in scripture is Jesus taught. Jesus taught. Now, some of you are tuning me out right now. Don't tune me out yet till we get to the end of this, okay? Jesus taught, look at, look at uh, turn your Bibles, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. When you look at Jesus's ministry, whether he was addressing curious crowds or whether he was talking to com- the committed core, Jesus took advantage of every teachable moment that he had. 
Now think about this. John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. When did he become flesh? And Bethlehem, right? When he took on human form. So we have this Jesus that is the incarnate word, but every time that he would come in contact with people, what was he always sharing with them? He was always sharing the written word with them. He was always sharing the truth of God's word. Here he is, the incarnate word. I I am the word. I was in the beginning. But yet when he was interacting with people, he was always sharing the word of God with them. Why was Jesus, God, always sharing the written word of God when he was interacting with people? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17. Does anybody know what that says? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. You see, here's the deal. Many Christians do not consider themselves teachers because they don't have the spiritual gift of teaching. What do they mean by that? I don't stand behind a pulpit every Sunday and preach. I'm not the teacher of an ABF class. So because I don't have the spiritual gift of teacher, I obviously must not be a teacher, but I'm here tonight to tell you that's not the case. What would be one quote that I've given you in recent weeks that would say, you're teaching 24-7. You're the only Bible that some people will ever reach. In other words, you're teaching. You're teaching every moment of every day by the way you act, by the way you react, by the way you parent, by the way that you love, by the way that you spouse. Everything that you're doing, you're constantly teaching. And so Jesus shows us that teaching doesn't demand an outline. Uh, it doesn't, ma- does, doesn't demand alliteration where you have three points that all start with the same letter and you have a point to tack on to the end of that, right? That's why we think of teaching. No, that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is this, fill in your blanks with me. Teaching requires me to be so filled with God's word that it naturally overflows from me onto those around me. That's what teaching is. Teaching is me being so filled with God's word that it naturally overflows from me onto those around me. That's the point that James is making in our passage that we've memorized in the past. James chapter one and verse 22. What does it say? Somebody share that with us. I hear it. Somebody say it out loud. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, do what you say you're going to do. Teach by your attitude. Teach by your actions. Don't just hear the word. So DWJD, do what Jesus did. Be willing to make a difference in the lives of others through your witness, which includes your words and your works. These are some of the actions that Jesus did. Why are we looking at them? Because this is the way Jesus was able to be virtuous when he faced persecution and suffering. And we want to be able to do the same. One of the actions, the first action that he always did is he what? He prayed. Secondly, he engaged the lost. Third, defended the truth. And more often that was in line with who? believers living like believers than it was confronting non-believers with the wrong thing. Action number four, Jesus, what? Taught. And then action number five. And again, there's a lot more of these, but these are the only five we'll cover tonight is Jesus served. Jesus served. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. I want us to read a, 
a pretty lengthy passage there. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17, thinking about how that Jesus served. Matthew chapter 20, let's look at verses 17 through 28. Verse 17 says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now, y'all have all read this story. You've read this thing right there. So, so Jesus has just told his disciples what? This is it. I'm about to be murdered. I'm about to be, to go through all these horrible things. So the very next statement that you would expect someone to say to Jesus after he's just explained that to them would be what? Oh my Jesus, not really. Or how can we keep that from happening? Or, or are you real? I mean, something like that. But look what the next thing that happens says. The minute he's just said that on the third day, he'll be raised up. Verse 20. So then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons bowing down. All right, she gets it. She's bowing down to Jesus. She's fixing like, oh Jesus, how do we keep this happening? How, how, do, how do we, what do we need to do? I mean, she's bowing down to him, right? And makes a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. Really? You're talking about me focused right there. You're talking about what am I going to get out of you, Jesus? What are you going to give me? What what are you going to do for me? I mean, she doesn't even hear what he's saying is about to happen because she's so focused on getting what her needs are and what she wants for them. Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Are you ready to go through the persecution and the suffering that I'm about to go through? And what do they say? Oh, yeah, man, get, bring it on. You know, give me two cupfuls. I'm ready for that. I mean, you just read this and you're just you can't help but kind of giggle. It's either that or cry. Are they really that clueless at this moment? He said to them, my cup, you shall drink. What's he saying? You're going to suffer and you're going to have persecution. What did we just read in first Peter chapter two? Jesus suffered and he did this to show us what? To be an example. So we know how to walk. Peter lived it and then he wrote about it. This is where he's getting introduced to it. Folks, listen to me. I'm introducing you to the fact that there is coming a day you're going to face persecution and you're going to face suffering for believing the way that we do, that the Bible is truth and what it does. And we don't get it sometimes. We don't pay attention to it. But I'm telling you, eventually we're going to need to be ready. We're going to need to be ready. And this is what's going on right here. Jesus is trying to prepare them and they're not ready to hear. And that's why over and over again, he would say, let him that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him that has ear to hear, let him hear, right? He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, that's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. 
It's not supposed to be what you're asking for. You're not supposed to be worried about being first. You're not supposed to be worried about who's going to serve you. They were asking, can we sit on the right hand and the left hand of you get Jesus so that all, everybody else can come serve us? He's saying that's not supposed to be the mindset of those that follow me. And Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority of them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So service marked Jesus's life from start to finish. Service marked Jesus's life from start to finish. And Jesus always served through sacrifice. Jesus was always worried about putting the needs of others above his own. What did he do at the Last Supper? He's about to fulfill what he said he's going to Jerusalem to do. And he puts on the serving town. He gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. His life of service culminates at the cross where he died to pay our spiritual Dead, And so every Christian needs to have a way to express their relationship with Christ through service. DWJD, what? Do what Jesus did. I tell people all the time, not everybody can fit in at Oak Ridge Baptist Church because we're a church that works. A person that comes just to sit, a person that comes just to to just be a a spectator on on Sunday morning, they're going to find it very uncomfortable because constantly they're going to be confronted with the fact that we believe that God saved us and he equipped us to serve and to put it into practice and to do things we're supposed to be doing because that's what Jesus did. He did not come to be served, but to do what? To serve. So there's other things that we talk about in scripture that we could see that we could talk about tonight. But here's five truths of things that Jesus did that I believe if we put those things into practice, then we become better prepared to be able to face the suffering. Action number one, Jesus prayed. Action number two, Jesus engaged the lost. Action number three, Jesus defended the truth. Action four, Jesus was a teacher. Action number five, Jesus was a servant. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, these are the things that Jesus involved himself in. And that's why he was able to handle suffering and persecution virtuously. And again, remember last week we talked, oh no, he was able to do that because he was God. What was he? He was all God, but he was all man as well. And he was willing to deal with those temptations and not give in them. So to wrap things up tonight, turn, turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter four. I want us to listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4. Begin reading with me in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I want you to know that Jesus was all about living a legacy so that he would leave a legacy. I want you to listen to me again about that. Jesus was all about living a legacy so that he would leave a legacy. What I mean by that, Jesus was always equipping leaders. 
He was always equipping others because he knew there was this time that he was going to die on the cross. He was going to be buried. He was going to raise again the third day. And then he was going to ascend back to heaven and be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And who was he going to leave in this world to carry on the legacy that he had lived in front of them? How many people were in place when Jesus ascended back into heaven? How many people were in place to start living the legacy that he had showed them in walking that footprints? How many? Nope. More than one. Amen. He calls 12, right? And then we know there's this place where there's 70 that he sends out to go and he gives them instructions. And by the time that we come to his ascension back up into heaven, there's about 120 followers of Christ at that point. Now think about that. How many thousand did he feed with five loaves and two fishes? 5,000 men. And did he just do that miracle one time? He did it another time. How many times did he do? How many people were there that time? There was now there's 4,000 at that time. So we're like at 9,000 people, right? And then we got all these men and these ladies and these things that are happening. It's crazy how many people. Then he's got all these lepers that he's been able to walk again, the blind that's been made to see, all these miracles. Now he's got these thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And how many got it? 120. There's 120 that have made the, made the determination. I'm going to follow in his footsteps because he lived the legacy and he left the legacy for me able to follow. And did they make a difference in the world in which they were located? You and I are a byproduct of 120 people that day. You and I are the byproduct, and that's the way that it played out after he leaves this legacy. Now, listen to what Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 says. He says, now in light of that, he says that the pastor's primary mission is the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So that involves teaching, that involves training, that involves modeling a Christ-focused life and ministry and helping Christians identify and prepare for the mission God has designed for them. But here's the problem that most have. Most Christians want to come and just sit and soak. Now, I know I'm not talking to anybody in here tonight that's like that. And I know everybody that's listening on Facebook, right? We are not those kind of Christians, right? We're not the kind that just come on Sunday morning and just come on Sunday night and just come on Wednesday night and gain a lot of good information and don't do anything with it. But I want you to know that there are a lot of Christians out there that do that. And it's not something new that's to the Christian faith. You remember what the writer of Hebrews wrote to those Christians about something similar to this? Hebrews chapter 5. He says, concerning him, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Man, you come on Sunday morning, you come on Sunday night, you come on Wednesday night, you're, you're getting the word, but you've heard the stories before. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, if we truly want DWJD, which stands for what? do what Jesus did, then we have to move beyond just learning about Jesus and we have to start living for Jesus. We have to take these simple actions that we see present in Jesus's life and we have to start putting those into practice 
in our life. And it's my prayer when we come together on Wednesday nights and we go into the Word and we study the Word. And I, and I love the fact that we get things out of the Word. But I'm not presenting this Word to you so that you can sit around at coffee tomorrow amongst other Christians and talk about this new stuff that you learned on Wednesday night. If that's all we're going to get out of this, then I'm wasting my time. Because my calling is to equip you so that you will leave out of these back doors and go do what Jesus did. And what are the five things that we determined that he did tonight? That's why I give you the sermon notes so we can go back and review those and we can look at those things and we can talk about those and we can pray God because ultimately what we are called to do is what James talks about in James chapter 1 and verse 22. Don't just be what? Hearers of the word on Wednesday night. But go outside those back doors and be what? Because if you don't go do it, you know what we're doing? We're just playing make-believe. We're deluding ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not because we're not truly fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ if we're not doing the things that we glean from in Scripture. And that's my prayer tonight. That's my prayer every Wednesday night when we come together is that when we leave out here, we'll have more information to go be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Let's go out and do DWJD, right? Do what? If y'all want to make me a bracelet, I'll be happy to wear that after this. Right? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us this time tonight and to be able to open your word. We pray that that's what we'll do, that we will do what Jesus did and that we will leave out of this place hungry to make an impact. If 120 people could set this world on its, on its ear the way that those first followers did we're serving the same God. We're serving the same power. We have the same strength in us that they had. And Father, I believe that we can do the same, but we have to be willing to go do it. So I pray that that's what will happen. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.